For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, why the monsoon is both a friend and foe during wildfire season. Fly high in a friendly competition between A-10 pilots using live rounds. Explore the unique sound of the squirrel nut zippers with band leader Jimbo Mathis. And when was the last time you took a big risk? Dimelo tells the story of a woman who's glad she did. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The annual monsoon is usually cause for celebration in the Sonoran Desert. But the much needed clouds and rain bring with them lightning and that increases the threat of wildfires. Next, Zach Ziegler takes a closer look at the state of the season so far and what may be ahead in the coming weeks. The fire spotting post on Mount Lemmon went active more than two months ago. Lemon Rock Lookout overlooks much of the western slope of the Santa Catalina Mountains in the Tucson area. Mac Tippins showed up for duty on April 3rd, and he hasn't seen much in the way of fires since then. I can only claim one real fire that we've had up here. The Montrose fire was spotted May 12th in Sabino Canyon. It ended up being a 13-acre fire that we hit very, very hard with four helicopters. The fire was out three days later, and things have been quiet in the Catalinas since then. That's not out of the ordinary this time of year. Is it any slower than last year, year before? I, I would say no, it's about the same. It just tends to start off slow here. The slow start has been aided by cooler than normal weather this spring. Rich Naden is a fire weather meteorologist for the federal agency that oversees wildfire response around the southwest. The spring weather pattern was generally cooler much of April and May with periodic bursts of moisture and some storms. That means grasses and other small vegetation haven't had a chance to thoroughly dry out yet, leaving wildfires without an abundance of quick-burning kindling to get them going. Add to that rains, like Tucson had last weekend, and conditions are even less in favor of fire. When you get one or two big storms in April into May, that really knocks us back several weeks. But spring storms and cool weather are behind us. Ken Drust is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service office in Tucson. As we get into uh, the latter part of June, we're going to have uh, another big warm-up, probably a little bit more prolonged, pretty intense, many days of, of triple digits plus. Those warm days look like they're going to get started this weekend. All but the highest elevations of southern Arizona will be under an excessive heat warning that stretches into next week and temperatures could reach all-time highs. Naden says he's not surprised by what the forecast shows is coming. It's almost like clockwork that last week of June is normally the hottest and driest time of the year for all the southwest area, especially Arizona. The Catalinas may soon look a little more like the lands managed by the State Department of Forestry in southern Arizona. We do not have a lot of the, the pine forest here. Uh, a lot of it is that uh, desert influence. That's Steve Miller, the southwest district manager for the department. 
Conditions on state forest lands have been drier than in the mountains of the Coronado National Forest, and activity levels there show what dry vegetation means for fire season. We have been fairly busy. We've been averaging a couple of fires a week with our crews and engines. It has been a fairly active fire season for us. Millard says most of the fires his crews have worked were lightning-caused. That hasn't been the case at higher elevations. Coronado National Forest investigators suspect humans started at least half of the reported fires so far this year. And a big concern is campfires. State and national forests in six counties in Arizona are under some stage of fire restriction. But there are no such controls in place in southern Arizona. Tippin says people shouldn't take that to mean it's always okay to have a fire. It might be legal to have a campfire in the middle of a red flag warning day when the winds are high and the relative humidity is down. Common sense would dictate maybe this is not the best day to have a campfire. Campfires aren't the only way human-caused fires start. A discarded cigarette butt, improperly secured tow chains on a vehicle, or activities such as welding can all spark a blaze. And it won't be long until naturally lit fires are also a big concern for land managers. Tucson meteorologist Druzd says while monsoons often come with large amounts of rain. Somewhere there, there's a, a place where you get a lot of lightning strikes and not a lot of moisture. That, that can be an area of concern. State forest manager Millard says monsoons are also concerning because of their sudden nature. You know, you get up in the morning and it's, it's a clear day and all of a sudden, you know, somewhere you look outside and it's like, where did that cloud come from? The monsoon also acts as the great extinguisher of wildfire season. Fire meteorologist Naden says it just depends on how rapidly the storms move in. Typically, when that moisture arrives from the south-southeast, it, it can arrive in small spurts, or sometimes it can arrive in just one giant swoosh from the south. Sporadic storms here and there can prolong the season, but a long run of rain will end it. We can go from ongoing large fires to virtually nothing going on in, in less than a week depending on how the moisture intrusion occurs. He says the sudden deluge of water that comes in a storm is important. And that's certainly, you know, the biggest eye candy. But what really impacts the forested regions is the increase in humidity. According to Naden, once relative humidity has stayed around 20% for five days, fires really start to slow down, putting an end to the wildfire season and taking a bit of an edge off of what's left of the hot Arizona summer. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Zach Ziegler. Recently, the runway at Davis-Monthan was filled with more A-10 aircraft than usual as Air Force pilots gathered in Tucson to compete for the title of A-10 Top Gun. It's an event called the Hog Smoke Competition, and Christopher Conover was happy to attend. This is what the A-10 sounds like as it flies over Tucson, a familiar sound to most people who live in the old Pueblo. But the A-10's job isn't just to fly above Tucson, it's an attack aircraft often called on to provide support to troops on the ground in places like Afghanistan. That sounds like this. <laughs> Tucson is a training area for pilots of the plane effectually known as the Hog. Recently, representatives from nearly every A-10 squadron, including those based in South Korea, came to Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and the Goldwater Range to compete in Hog Smoke. Major Kyle Lanto, call sign SWAT, is a pilot with the 47th Fighter Squadron based at Davis-Monthan. 
They won Hog Smoke two years ago, so they hosted the event this year. Hog Smoke, the biennial competition for the hogs. You know, it's a gathering of hogs, if you will. All the A-10 squadrons, we try to get them all together. Unfortunately, we can't get them all together at some times, but we're here to discuss tactics, techniques, and procedures and put them on display for everybody to see. You know, there, there is no, uh, no hiding um, in this competition, but also what it does is, is it gets everybody on the same page and lets you know what guys are doing downrange. When the A-10s dive in on those scored strafing runs, they're just 75 or so feet off the ground. They're shooting at targets hung from poles less than a mile away, and that sound is unique, according to SWAT. Yeah, so. Oh, to describe it. Yeah. This heard is about a 50-round burst. You hear the impacts, plus the bullets breaking the mock, and then you actually heard the sound of the gun. So it goes in that order, you know, depending on where, where you are in space. But for us today, that's what we're hearing. You said 50 rounds. That, that takes some discipline in the cockpit. It does. To hold that thing down. About a half a second is the way you pull up. So... <laughs> that was about 70. You tell us a little bit longer. So, you know, it's, it's still less than a... Oh, it's about a second of trigger pull on 70 rounds. It takes a moment for the gun to spin up. The first 0.4 to 0.5 seconds is the barrel spinning up to the rate, and then it fires. The contest keeps the pilots busy. An hour straight of just, it's flipping switches, it's looking for the targets, it's finding the targets, and then being as precise as possible. SWAT wasn't flying for the 47th this year. That was left to four captains, including David Knighton, call sign Gnome, and they did well very well. We won three individual awards. We won top 45 degree uh, high altitude dive bomb. We won top 30 dB HARS, which is a particular type of bombing delivery. And we won the top 10 degree low angle high drag, which is also another type of bombing delivery. So those three things helped us win the top conventional team overall. And then that combined with our placement in the tactical portion helped us win the top overall team. And then I took top overall pilot as well. The pilots in the 47th were the defending champs, but Noam and the three other captains tried not to think about that. It's an honor just to uh, be represented to select your, to represent your squadron because you know every squadron's probably going to have about 30 pilots for it. So they only send their, their top four or five, the guys that they want to choose to represent them. So that right there uh, means you don't want to mess it up. And then it's very public, you know. Uh, so try not to mess it up in front of all your peers. But when you get up there and you're flying, you're really just concentrating on what's the next thing I have to do and, and how do I do it well. The skills tested in hog smoke are the same ones pilots use when they're deployed in a war zone, according to SWAT. There's nothing designed specifically for hog smoke. These are all um, the tactics, the techniques and procedures that guys are doing that are my brand new lieutenants that I'm instructing, you know, that have less than 50 hours in the aircraft are able to do this. Hog smoke is a live fire competition, but Noam says the pilots don't always use live ammunition during training. It's pretty funny because if you listen to the tape, when pilots are practicing their strafing maneuvers, when they squeeze the trigger, every pilot I know goes and they try to simulate the noise that the gun makes because it just feels weird to squeeze the trigger without something making that noise. While the 47th waits to find out where they'll go next to defend their trophy, they'll continue training the next generation of A-10 pilots will use those skills to defend American troops on the ground. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover.
The squirrel nut zippers proved their unique sound had mass appeal with the success of their second album, Hot, in 1996. The band toured the world and even played a gig on Sesame Street. After taking a break to work on other projects and recharge his creative battery, Mississippi-born Jimbo Mathis is back with a new version of the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Still, the most frequent question he's asked is, where did the name come from? Mathis attributes it to a chewy caramel and peanut candy that's been made in the South since the 1890s. You'll find out more about the zippers next in this interview produced by Julie Lucetta. What was the reaction of people in your life when you told them about that name? <laughs> they wanted to have me committed. <laughs> but it seemed to be catchy, you know, so much like the candy. It would pull your feelings out. So you have a pretty colorful name, but also a pretty colorful style. A lot of people have, have tried to describe it. My favorite is 1930s punk. What were your intentions when you first started out? It was me going back deeper and deeper and deeper into the roots of American music and concocting an idea that would be a kind of surreal vaudeville uh, cabaret type show from theater to music to acrobatics, whatever, <laughs> menagerie. It wanted to be surreal like a Betty Boop cartoon, you know, how that was a perfect collaboration of American music, which was swing, jazz, uh, Harlem jazz, mixed with this animation, you know. That's where we first heard the big band and the swing and some of the Tin Pan Alley songs. The visual component was just as important as the, the musical component. When you guys came along, you, you really proved that people were nostalgic about an earlier era of American music. And did you consciously tap into that? It wasn't anything conscious. I, I wasn't trying to, to do anything except create an art project that I, I thought was was w wickedly funny and also a little bit scary, you know, and creepy. <laughs> if you look at the lyrics, there's a lot of dark humor in there, you know, a lot of parody-type satire, um, and some pretty serious topics, you know. I mean, we'd mask it in the, in the vaudeville, you know, and uh, it just struck a chord. And I think it'll strike the same chord today. I know what it's like to be in, in the audience of a show like this, and it's, it's very exuberant, but I don't know mm. what it's like to be on stage. What, what does it feel like? With the zippers, it's, you know, it's just a liberating experience i mean you've got this huge orchestra up there um you've got songs that are comedic and that are exuberant and you know wicked you know ideally it's just uh 
it's like a little hoodoo ceremony, you know, and everybody just gets caught up in it, young and old, and appreciate it the same way, you know. You just experience it, and you come away feeling elevated, you know, lifted and released, you know, from your day-to-day thing. Do you remember what it was like to be on Sesame Street? You know, probably my proudest moment, and, and uh, I know that you're not supposed to be proud, uh, prideful, but... You know, certain things like that Sesame Street was a very big deal. Um, the presidential inaugural ball, that was a big deal. Bill Clinton's second inaugural ball. At Radio City Music Hall, uh, zippers opened up for Tony Bennett and the Count Basie Orchestra. I flew my grandmother, she's Italian, um, and all my aunts, cousins. I had the whole family in Manhattan, man. And uh, took them out to dinner. Went to had them front seats of to Tony Bennett's Squat Zippers at Radio City Music Hall, and it was the proudest moment of my life. My grandmother looked over me and said, I, "I wish Papa was here." Talking about my grandfather, I said, "I know." And then all the sisters were like, "Yeah, he's here." <laughs> Birdman is proud to present the Squirrel Nut Zippers. Yeah, give it up. <laughs> Do you see yourself kind of following the tradition of Southern Gothic? Of course, yes. Absolutely. A fascination with the dead, the past, you know, ancient mannerisms, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, absolutely. (laughs) And it, it resonates with people, obviously. It does. It does, you know. I think that's something I definitely brought to the zippers at the first incarnation, and now I'm even more prepared to do it. It's just a channel to the past, you know. I mean, I, it's just in my bones. Um, so audiences that want to come hear us and taking possession of the zippers music again is going to be going to be pretty hot stuff. <laughs> For Arizona Spotlight, this is Julie Lucetta. Jimbo Mathis and the new version of the Squirrel Nut Zippers launched their first tour in nearly a decade in Tucson Wednesday, June 29th at the Rialto Theater. Next, Dimelo asks... When have you taken a big risk? This story comes from a postcard received at the Tucson Analog Hour. Lupita Chavez has the day off for working at the Pima County Public Library. She's hanging with her daughter Cheyenne and her 15-month-old granddaughter Luella. Luella is trying very hard to be part of the conversation. As a single mom, Lupita raised Cheyenne with the support of her parents. Now it's Cheyenne's turn. While her husband is away training for the Air Force, she and her daughter Luella live part-time with her mom. Lupita says they're a close-knit family, and it's always been that way. We'd walk around the stores talking, and people would walk up to us and say, you guys need your own reality show. (laughs) We would just talk and talk and talk, and it's not unusual that we would start dancing if there was a good song, you know, playing at the store. 
Two years ago, Lupita got an unusual offer. Her friend knew a photographer who was putting together a book that celebrated the bodies of mothers, untouched, unairbrushed as they are. She wondered, would Lupita consider posing for the book? Would she consider posing partially or completely nude? Nobody's, I've never, you know, no one's taken photos of me, much less photos without any clothing on, you know, and I thought, all right. So that's when I called Cheyenne. At the time that you called me and asked me if you should do this project, I was pretty young. I was like 21 years old. I had just gone out into the world for the first time. So a lot of these like concepts about body positivity and stuff, I was just starting to look into them more. And I remember feeling very much like it wasn't something we had discussed necessarily verbatim. Maybe it was a way that we had lived our lives, but we hadn't talked about body positivity. Lupita had several hesitations. She worked at the library where the book would be available publicly. She has psoriasis on her legs that she's always tried to hide. And posing for this project meant re-examining her past relationship with her body. I grew up with a mom who was very small. She's petite. Um, her sisters were all very slender. Um, they were a very Spanish-looking family. I look like my dad, who's very Apache-looking. And so I was short and squat and round and dark, and they weren't. And that had everything to do with the way I grew up feeling uncomfortable with how I looked. I mean, I, my knees were almost black. They were, it was ridiculous. They were almost black. And when summer came, I was almost black. And, but my knees were horrible. And I literally, we would start off with, I mean, they used to make me rub lemon juice into my knees and my elbows to see if they could lighten my skin. And when that didn't work, we would use scouring powder like the Clorox. There I was scrubbing my knees with lemon juice and scouring powder to see if we could make them lighter because my mom was like, those are ugly. They're ugly. And I think some people would sit there and say that's like abusive, but she was, for her, she thought we've got to make that go away because it's ugly and what's important is how you, how you look. And for my mom, I think that was really difficult because when you grow up really poor in Mexico, regardless of what else you might have going for you, what you look like as a woman is going to make a really big difference between whether or not you get stuck in your situation or whether or not you get out. So that's why for me growing up, I think it's why I'm such a smart ass, to be really honest. I, I, I totally know I am, but it was easier to crack a joke about something because there were things that I couldn't change. I couldn't change the color of my skin. And it's with this attitude and confidence that she was able to do different things. It helped her join the army. and She became a truck driver in Germany in her early 20s. You know, when you go into basic training and you're small and round and kind of chubby, every drill sergeant that sees you is going to drop you and make you do push-ups. So they'd walk up and I'd just drop and start doing push-ups. What are you doing? You're going to make me do it anyway. And they'd just start laughing and so I'd do my push-ups and get up and walk away. Yet it's one thing to feel strong and another to feel beautiful. Back to that phone call Lupita had with her daughter Cheyenne about whether or not she should do the project. Her immediate response was, I think you should do it. And she said, do it. She said, you're not a size two. You're not light-skinned. Um, you're not perfect, but you're beautiful. And she said, it really depends on whether or not you're comfortable with it. She said, but I think you totally need to do this. So Lupita met photographer Jade Beale and agreed to become part of her book, A Beautiful Body Project. 
Okay, so in this photo right over here, I'm laying on my back, and that's the only time that I didn't cover my top but my arms laying across me. All you see are my rolls. I mean, I've you spend every day picking out your outfit to cover that, and then you go into the studio and there's the lights hitting you, <laughs> the camera snapping, and that's, and to be relaxed. I mean, you, I'm just laying there and my eyes are closed and I'm completely relaxed. And um, that was a, it was a gift. Before doing something like this, I never really wore dresses. I would not go to work with spaghetti straps and things like that because I thought I had to cover. I thought I had to hide the things that other people found unpleasant. And with this, I kind of thought, man, I'm in this book and I'm in these pictures that have been all over the world and there's a lot that's not covered. I don't really care if somebody doesn't like the jiggly fat on the back of my arms and I don't really care if somebody doesn't like that my skin is spotted and speckled and weird. I don't care because I went out there and I did this and I lived through it and I actually loved it. It was the most freeing experience I've ever been a part of. To accompany her photos she in the book about mothers, Lupita wrote this text about her daughter. Them. Easily one of the most stunning women you could possibly imagine. It's magnified by the beauty of her personality. She is smart, For all her reservations about her own beauty, when it comes to her daughter, Lupita has never seen anyone more radiant. I feel like it's so funny to hear her describe me like that, but now that I have a kid, I totally get it. Because I thought it was so crazy. I was like, I don't look anything like she said that I look. Like, that's not really me but now that I have my own baby like I totally understand that point of view why do you understand because she's that? the most beautiful person in the world she's my baby I mean I know her hair grows in like a weird mullet shape and she's always covered in bruises on her little knees because she's clumsy and I, I'm sure that objectively there's things that are wrong with the way she looks but I have a really hard time picking them out <laughs> Lupita says no. She's perfect. She is pretty perfect. She's pretty perfect. And Cheyenne can't help but agree. For Dimelo Stories, I am Sofia Palisakar. Dimelo is a community-driven storytelling project. Add your voice. Go to dimelostories.org or drop a postcard in one of the special mailboxes around town. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Some of the music was performed by Sixa. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>